0: Welcome to allthingsnew.tech, where we are exploring the intersection of theology and technology. Technology is changing our jobs, relationships, and even our identities. It's easy to get excited about all the new things, but as Christians, we also believe that God is redeeming this world through His effort, making all things new. This podcast features conversations with entrepreneurs, technologists, and innovators, examining how technology transforms our understanding of God, His creation, and what it means to be human. Today, Paul Taylor from All Things New is talking with Amanda Voss and John Tanago. Amanda is the Director of Strategic Partnerships for International Justice Mission, or IJM. John is the Director of IJM's field office in Cebu, Philippines. IJM is a global organization dedicated to fighting injustice and modern-day slavery. Paul, Amanda, and John will be talking about IJM's work to fight what's called OSEC, the online sexual exploitation of children. They'll talk about this horrific problem, which in many ways is enabled by technology. This practice is one of the worst possible examples of how technology can be used to dehumanize people victims and perpetrators alike. But they'll also explore how technology might contribute to some solutions as well. And finally, they'll think about how we can use and create technology with these concerns in mind. We hope you appreciate this conversation.
1: Well, welcome. Uh, this is Paul Taylor with All uh, AllThingsNew.Tech, and I have the privilege of sitting here with Amanda Voss and John Tanago. Amanda is the Director of Strategic Partnerships for International Justice Mission. She works in the Silicon Valley to connect with companies and churches in IJM's global effort to protect the poor from violence. She has a background in sales and implementation of healthcare information technology. And John is the Director of International Justice Mission's field office in Cebu, Philippines. He is uh, focused on ending OSEC, which is the online sexual exploitation of children he has a background in law, so I think he's our first All Things New Tech lawyer on the show. So that's that's exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, um, maybe the last. You know, we'll see how, how it goes. <laughs> Most likely the last. Yeah, and uh, his background is in civil law and white collar criminal defense. And uh, it's really privileged to have you both here. So thank you. Thanks thank for joining me.
2: Thanks, Paul. We're happy to be here.
1: Yeah. So John, why don't you start and just kind of introduce what you do with IJM and what your work is, kind of give a brief overview of OSEC.
2: Sure. So um, International Justice Mission is working in the Philippines, um, partnering with the government, um, NGOs, and civil society to combat a form of human trafficking that we call online sexual exploitation of children. And uh, really simply, um, it is the sexual abuse of children that is then live streamed. Um, online to offenders around the world. Um, It's also used to create videos and photos of um, the child sexual abuse uh, of children. And so um, it's a really dark um, crime. It's really evil. Um, It causes tremendous harm and trauma to children. Um, But we're seeing um, significant success um, using our model to um, partner with the government and strengthen their justice system's response to this crime.
1: That's great. Thank you. Uh, Amanda, you want to give us a brief overview of kind of the partnerships that you're working to build and that you're excited about?
3: Yes, absolutely. So I have the pleasure of working with all different groups across the Bay Area to help them engage in the work of IJM, which broadly speaking is really the work to protect the poor from violence um, and seeing how an end to things like slavery and human trafficking through strengthening public justice systems is a key part to the overall um, complexity of eradicating global poverty. So I work with churches, individuals, foundations, um, and more and more with the corporate sector. And of course, here in Silicon Valley, that is the tech companies to understand what role um, their corporate influence and the products that they're creating play in these overall issues that we're trying um, to, to solve and what role they can play in being a part of the solution.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk about kind of the, what you're seeing. Um, as we, one of the big themes we talk about a lot at allthingsnew.tech is, is humanity. And I think what we've discovered is when you talk about technology, it all kind of comes back to what it means to be human. Uh, What I always say is people get excited about technology because it offers to extend our humanity or or give us more, better capabilities. But we get afraid of technology because we're worried that it might degrade our humanity or take something away. And so a lot of our conversations have to do with even what does it mean to be human because there's not really great consensus on that. And, and I think a lot of our conversations, you know, is is checking my Instagram feed for hours a day, is that taking away from something from my humanity? And probably, but, it, it you know, with the work you're doing, it there's a pretty clear line that mm. there's gross dehumanization right. happening. There's, this is not open to interpretation. Mm. So, I mean, can you talk about that, how the technology in particular has allowed kind of more dehumanization perhaps than in the past?
2: Yeah, that's uh, a really good question. And I think the easiest way to answer it is um, there is, there's a, a product that has been created, uh, mm. for lack of a better term. And the product is the sexual abuse of children. And, um, but the way that that product is, is getting to the offenders who are paying for it um, is via technology. And, uh, and what we're seeing is it's primarily via live streaming. Mm. And so, you know, you have these wonderful technologies where we can, uh, we can live stream, uh, you know, anything on TV, we can live, live stream sports, um, or I can call somebody on on the other side of the world, um, and see them and they can see me. And so we can connect, um, you know, beautifully and and globally, even though we're not in the physical, the same space. Right. But with... With online exploitation, what technology has allowed um, criminals to do is uh, commodify human beings. Wow! So they're they're selling, um, you know, the the image, the video, and then the actual act of mm-hmm. sexually abusing a child. And so mm-hmm. you can just imagine the dehumanization. Um, children are no longer seen as uh, you know these precious, innocent people made in the image of God who have dignity and self worth, but they're seen as a way to um, profit and and make easy money. And then for the offenders around the world, it's just to satisfy their their deviant desires, right? right. It's, they're consuming um, these children, and and but the only way they can do that is because of technology. Right. If it wasn't for the fact that they could live stream the abuse um then there wouldn't be you wouldn't have that form of dehumanization
1: now this is what kind of interests me is you know and I'm interested in whether you think this is accurate but you take you know most simply put there's three parties here right there's the there's the buyer there's the perpetrator and then there's the victim is that fair that's correct yeah yeah so if you think about all those three parties and the way technology affects them my guess is Most of the buyers wouldn't go to a dark alley, go into a back room, sit down on a chair, and pay somebody to abuse a child in front of them. And my guess is most of the perpetrators wouldn't take their niece or their nephew or their daughter or their son or their neighbor to a dark room, strap them down, accept money from a stranger, and abuse them in front of them person and yet they're willing to do that online is it am I I mean obviously there's a wide range of perpetrators and
2: buyers but is that yeah there there is a wide range but um, I think you're onto something because for for the offender who is directing the abuse um, and 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 paying for it he is physically removed from the victims yeah so um, in a way he can you know, tell himself, I'm not actually abusing the child, right? I'm not putting my hands on the child. Um, someone else is doing that. Yeah. So they're the ones who are most culpable and most to blame. And, uh, and yeah, you could definitely see a population of, a, of, of these online sex offenders who, um, may not go, may not take the step to abuse a child in person, right? You definitely do have overlap, but you you have a population who it, maybe they're afraid to do that. It's too risky. Sure. Um, and and what they want to do is they want to see it. They want the visual stimulus, uh, you know, stimulus of seeing um, the child naked or seeing the child sexually exploited um, live stream or on a video. Um, and so, if it weren't for that technology, I'm certain there's a subset of offenders who wouldn't be wouldn't be abusing children um physically Uh, i think on the on the other side um we've we've definitely seen that with the perpetrators in the philippines who are abusing children and live streaming this abuse and and receiving lots of money they there's not people who were previously in like the commercial sex industry they weren't you know um the majority of these people are not people who were pimps or traffickers you know into bars or brothels um there are people who are doing this because they've realized they can make a lot of money abusing a child in their home and, and just opening up their smartphone, you know, and going to any video enabled application that, right. that anybody can use yeah. um, over the Internet and, and live streaming that. And so for them, they also can justify and say, well, I'm not um, it's not as bad right. as if I brought this child to yeah. mm-hmm. uh, an adult and I let them. Physically sexually abuse them in person. Right. So there is a way that technology allows people to rationalize or justify um, the way that they're abusing children in online sexual exploitation.
1: Yeah, I mean that's what's so I think horrifying. I mean, there's so many things that are horrifying about this crime, but it seems like this technology, which is inert or you know is non, it's just it's just the capability to interact over the internet unlocks something in the buyers in the perpetrators it unlocks this thing that that maybe there's some there's something there but they wouldn't act on or it creates this new opportunity that that almost makes people worse than Mm -hmm. who they were before and I, i mean do you have any speculation on what that like why (laughs) Why that is like, why?
3: Well, I think it's helpful to point out that this is often a progression. In Mm. other words, an otherwise healthy person, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and sexually doesn't just wake up one morning and suddenly want to start Watching the abuse of children online. Sure. But we are living now in a world and in a generation where there has been so much objectification and dehumanization of humans online, yep. mostly through pornographic content, that it is a progression over time of getting kind of deeper and deeper into this sin and this brokenness and the denial and the justification mm. around what we're doing. Mm. Because if we've been able to really justify and get pretty comfortable with the idea of pornography, right. for example, it becomes less and less of a stretch yeah. to then start saying like, well, if she's a teenage girl instead of an adult woman, that that's like a little bit of an easier step yep. to take. Right. Um, so I think it's helpful to just recognize that this is a, a progression that we're seeing over time. And in some ways that can be really helpful. Um, the, the prevalence of this crime is so much larger than any of us would would care to believe, and part of that's because it's not just this tiny little subsect of particularly kind of perverted members of our society. Rather, I think it's it's a lot of kind of everyday people right. that have gone kind of through this dark progression, perhaps since they were teenagers.
1: Do we know? Do you do you guys have any statistics on? Yeah, it's like in the U.S. or in a generalized Western country.
2: Yeah, I'm, I have a lot of statistics. I'll just throw out a few sure. of them um, that come to mind. So the FBI um, estimates that at any given time, there's over 750,000 people online who are actively searching for child sexual abuse images, um, videos, or for to make contact with actual children that they could abuse online. Wow. Um, and, you know, another mind-blowing...
1: worldwide, not limited to the U.S., or is that...
2: Yeah, that, 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 that's just what the FBI has been, been sure. able to estimate. Just um, yeah. But just last year, so in 2018, um, over 45 million video and image files of suspected child sexual exploitation were reported to U.S. authorities. Hmm. So for me, that's totally mind-blowing, uh, and I think it just speaks to what Amanda is is talking about that there's there's so much access online now um whether you're talking about the surface web in in uh, chat rooms or um, peer-to-peer or even if you're talking about the dark web um uh there's so much availability of of sexual exploitation and abuse images and videos uh, and now live streaming of children um and you know there's some interesting uh research that i found uh uh, it's a, in, 2000, in, in 2016, there was a team of leading researchers who compiled all the research they could find on the subject of how online pornography contributes to violence. Wow! And I think this is this question, yeah. this, this idea that Amanda's bringing up, that, um, that we just get used to the dehumanization of other people. Um, and what they found after examining 22 studies um, was that the research left little doubt that individuals who consume pornography more frequently are more likely to hold attitudes conducive to sexual aggression and actually engage in acts of sexual aggression, aggression themselves. Um, and it was titled a meta-analysis of pornography consumption. And so when you think about that, when when people are continually viewing um, sexual acts of aggression um, over and over again, uh, online, uh, in, in, in online pornography, it just becomes more normal to them right they're so used to seeing it um and and at some point maybe that um, spills over into an addiction right right and and any uh addiction specialist will tell you that addictions grow right and at one point the um you know the drug that was causing pleasure and satisfying the person's addiction, it's no longer enough.
1: So you look for something bigger. You
2: look for something right. bigger, you look for something more extreme, right? Um, you look for something more violent, or you look for something new. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're seeing with online sexual exploitation of children. You know, IGM has helped Philippine law enforcement rescue five hundred and twenty-seven victims um, of this crime in the Philippines, which is really which is really amazing. Yeah. Um, and over fifty percent of these victims have been 12 years old or younger and a hundred of them have been six years old or younger and so what that is telling us is that online offenders are specifically seeking out abuse of young children right and they want it live stream because they want new abuse that they get to direct that they get to dictate what is done to the child and so it's just fits the progression of addiction because it's something they've never seen before.
1: Well, what strikes me is, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the kind of the progression of, of, of addiction, because I think you can look at that from an individual perspective, like, uh, you know, a person grows up and they start looking at pornography and they start looking at more hardcore stuff and kind of that kind individual. But if you think about it historically, that's where it gets really kind of scary. So I was, looking up a little bit the connection between technology and the sex industry. And it's, it's really fascinating yeah. and scary. But there's a study done back in 98, which is you know, a long time ago for now. But it was looking at, um, so the printing press was invented. And then about 50 years later, there's pornographic books being printed and distributed. And then photography came about. And 50 years later, this cited uh, somebody who was arrested with 130,000 pornographic photographs. 50 years after photography existed and then you start to get into videography and there's this whole underground eight millimeter camera home porn rental industry that came up and then uh, if you guys remember the like battle between VHS and Betamax and the the kicker in that technology was the porn industry said we're going to use VHS and so then that became the standard and then, actually, the same thing has happened later on with um, the whole Blu-ray, HD DVD. That was the same issue when the porn industry decided what they were going to use. All wow. of the other technology followed suit. But the other interesting thing, and I, with the developing countries, I guess, um, commercial phone sex became a thing in the '90s, in the 1990s. And apparently, the commercial phone sex industry drove the adoption of telecommunications in a lot of developing countries because you couldn't house these things in the U.S., but you could go offshore. And so um, there was some quote about, like, this small country where 10,000 phone lines got installed in a number of years because it was all for phone sex. And so what scares me is, you know, if it's going from photographic books on the printing press to photographs to 8mm to HD to phone sex to, like, I mean, we're we're at this point in history, I it's hard to imagine it degrades worse than this because I, I mean, what could be worse, but but is there something worse? I mean, I, I don't know.
3: Virtual reality is the thing that scares me a little bit of yeah, what could be worse and right. what's coming next. But as you paint that picture, Paul, the overwhelming feeling I have is often when we speak about IJM, I hear especially from women and mothers, like, this is so hard and so sad and so dark and we are so tempted to therefore turn away from it yeah and we are tempted to not talk to our young kids about pornography and about the the um, exposure that they're going to have because we're not comfortable with it and because all of this feels easier to deny and look away than it does to lean into but as you lay out like the reality that you've just laid out we as like good people, and certainly as people of faith, like don't have an option right. to look away yeah. and say like this is a problem I don't want to be a part of because it is affecting us. It's affecting our marriages. It's affecting our children. It's yeah. affecting our churches. And we either stand up to it strategically and thoughtfully and creatively and innovatively, mm-hmm. um, or we just allow it to totally overwhelm more than it already has. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I just I just want to encourage listeners and encourage yeah. folks that feel a sense of despair when we talk about such like a dark topic um that we have to be a part of the solution yeah
1: Mm.
2: i i I mean i completely agree with what amanda is saying i think um what what children in you know the developing world need what vulnerable um, poor people need is to be protected from violence right and so um you know the best way to do that is to have a justice system that actually functions so good law enforcement who can investigate crime who can safeguard children um uh, people who can uh can prosecute the criminals an aftercare system uh that actually um treats uh children with the the kind of care that they need like trauma-informed care um to help them uh rehabilitate and be restored and in the midst of that um you you have the opportunity to leverage The amazing um, technology that we have today, things like machine learning, AI, or, um, you know, or even, uh, you know, live streaming, you have a way to leverage those technologies to actually strengthen the justice systems, right? Because in the developing world, they may not have the access or the resources to the same technological tools that are being used to perpetrate the crimes. Mm. Um, But so I, I agree that there is actually so much hope. Yeah. And so much opportunity for the tech industry um, to to step in just significantly and say, you know what, we are going to um, change the balance of power yeah. when it comes to injustice and slavery and exploitation online. We're going to make sure that justice systems in the developing world, we're, we're going to make sure that international stakeholders and governments have access to the best technology that can be used to combat Right. What are technology facilitated crimes?
1: So let's think about that a little bit because in my mind, there's two different things. so this is a great topic like and this is what we want to be thinking about at all things new. tech is what if we're in the tech industry, like are, are, can we do anything? And how does our faith affect the technology we create and the decisions we make? And I believe actually our faith affects the actual technological choices we're making as tech creators. Um, But it seems like there's two paths. One is um, you can build a technology solution to help catch people or prosecute or identify, child. you know, you can kind of on that end stop it or catch them or prosecute them. But is there another category of if our technology is contributing to this kind of general degradation Mm -hmm. of dehumanizing, can we build technology that doesn't dehumanize us in the first place, yes. and doesn't help? Doesn't make us become the kind of people that would abuse a child for money? Like, and that's maybe harder to think about. Yeah. Uh, but that that that's, I think, what I would love to. You know, that's what we like to explore. Is like, how do we build technology that helps restore our humanity, rather than turns us into? the kinds of people that consume images rather than relationships and
3: yeah i think one way that's maybe helpful to think about that from a big picture and then certainly john and i can provide some more concrete examples of yeah. the things that we're dreaming about as we talk with tech leaders throughout silicon valley this week but from a big picture I am of the strong opinion that as tech leaders, we need to start progressing beyond this perspective that tech is simply a neutral tool to be used for good or to be used for evil. Because while I think that is true to an extent... My experience is that we are hiding behind that a little bit to maybe um, wash our hands of any responsibility of the really evil things that are happening on the neutral tools that we're creating. Right. And rather to say that as like a moral people, let us shape these tools and their evolution in a way that promotes good and cuts off the ability to be used for evil. Yeah. I, I hope that we're moving in that direction, but it's hard to say where it'll go from here. But I think as as tech leaders and certainly as people of faith, we have a responsibility to be pushing the progression in that direction. Or at least
1: I was just spending time with a friend of mine who runs a ranch. And he said in, in horse training, there's a saying, make the good things easy and the bad things hard. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for a horse. So it seems like that's, you know make the, make the bad things at least harder to do, put some obstacles in the way.
3: And part of the challenge with that to be transparent is that there's a lot of money to be made off of the bad things. And frankly, not a lot of money to be made off of the good things. So in, in other words, there's $150 billion to be made a year in the trafficking industry. And a lot of that is being facilitated by technology. Yep. There, There's not that kind of money to be made off of protecting people right. and keeping people safe. Yeah.
2: And <clears throat> I mean, I, I love this idea of how can you make it um, harder yep. um, for for people to um, facilitate crimes, abuse children using um, these these good technologies that we love and we all use and we don't want to get rid of. Um, And I I just think of an analogy Amanda and I were were talking about, um, like in the automobile industry. So you have, you know, cars that are that are great. They uh, make us more efficient. We can, you know, go so many places we can go to work. And they're just they're wonderful um, tools. Um, But they can also cause a lot of harm. Right. You get into a car accident. You can die. You can kill someone else. But um, the automobile industry, and of course, in partnership with with government, have Put in safety nets, right? Yeah. So you have to wear, you have to, when you manufacture a car, you have to put in seatbelts, right. right? We have airbags, we have anti-lock brakes, we have a whole host of safety um, tools and mechanisms put in place to make this tool um, less dangerous, right. right? And so I just think about the same thing with technology, yeah. like, and even something as simple as the fact that, um, you know, we can all take a camera or, or a cell phone, um, and, and, and point it uh, at the stars or at, you know at, at just a beautiful scenery or at a family and take wonderful pictures and videos and live stream um, but th- so that's the good but at the same time um, a criminal can point the, those same technologies at a child that's being sexually abused a three-year-old, an infant and and they can, take the same video they can take the same live stream and send it across the world well what if we put in seatbelts yeah what if we create you know what if the tech industry created software or hardware that just would not allow those uh, technological devices to take to record video of child sexual abuse right i mean there's amazing um, artificial intelligence and machine learning Uh, And I'm sure that, you know, the 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 big tech companies in Silicon Valley have the smartest people who could come up with the best tech solutions for this. Yeah. Um, But in my mind, there's no reason why we can't be sitting here, you know, three years from now or five years from now and say, you know, uh, you can't take a video of a child being sexually abused because the technology won't let you. It will identify that that is a naked child or that is a, a child being abused. And I can't ta- I can't allow you to take that video or that photo or live stream it. I mean, in, in my mind, when I'm just like dreaming, like, how do we end what is a massive crime and what is a global crime right. that stretches be beyond any specific jurisdiction? I just think that um, tech companies have a huge opportunity um, to lead the way with this um, and, and to just show us what is possible to protect people from violence. Well,
1: and it seems to me, I mean, you just brought up that this, the issue, you know, is bigger than any jurisdiction. So you need a technological solution, but it seems like, you know, to give credit to the lawyer in the room, you need a legal solution too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's pretty easy to control how many cars come into the U.S. You know, it's pretty easy to stop a car at the border from coming in or import, like, so we can say, okay, cars need seatbelts, and we can enforce that pretty easily. But now you're talking about making sure that all the video platforms in the world have seat belts. Who's going to enforce that? And so now you're talking about yeah. global laws, right?
2: Right. I mean, I think that that's an excellent question, right? It would be a combination of all of the major, you know, technology companies coming together um, and agreeing, and mm. all of the, um, you know, we're not just talking about like social media companies too, but you really have to look at those who are creating the actual devices, right? The hardware. Right. Um uh, uh, companies and people who are putting out the smartphones, the laptops, all of that um uh, all of those devices that are being used, and yeah of course, you would need a partnership between you know uh global technology companies um and governments around the world right right They would need to be an agreement um but I think what what the tech industry should not wait for um is for is you know let it get to the point where government steps in Mm. and says hey hold on a second there's way too much harm being done on your platforms using your devices and and you're not doing enough to stop it right um and then come in and and put the brakes on right i think what you want to get the best solutions is a partnership between government and the tech sector because the tech sector can say okay hey this is what's technologically feasible um, and here's how we still keep these products available for for all the good things um, that that we want people to use them for. right so yeah you you do need a legal framework, a legal mechanism. Um, but interestingly, just to like in a a parallel to that is actually um, in counterterrorism. And you mm-hmm. saw after um the Christchurch uh, terrorist attack in New Zealand, um the Prime Minister of New Zealand getting together with a whole host of other governments and saying, hey, we need to ensure. That technology companies and social media companies don't allow a terrorist attack to be live streamed on their platforms. Oh, wow. So there's government stepping in and saying, hey, you can't do it. And then then they have to now work with the tech sector to make it a reality. Sure. But I think there's so much opportunity to do that. And even if you can't completely end it, but you could probably like cut down. On the online sexual exploitation of children globally by maybe 70 percent or 80 percent. i mean it could be an absolute game changer um but that's us dreaming here right mm-hmm. so it really takes the people who have um the actual tech uh, expertise right. the resources the time and but the reality is we're sitting in, in silicon valley having this conversation yeah so it's absolutely possible
1: right so i mean this is what you're I mean, this one of your roles right is yes. to develop this. Are you encouraged? Are you hopeful? Or is it...
3: I'm hopeful in the um, number of people that want to be a part of that solution, the number of good people that I get to encounter that are working in tech that want to see this happen. One of the challenges that I think those good people need to lead the way on is moving us beyond keeping our own platform clean or figuring Mm. out what what can we do on our platform to a more holistic approach because it's such a holistic crime. Um, So while creating specific safety features on Facebook or in Google Hangouts it's maybe helpful. I I think we're moving to the point of looking at this more holistically. How do we come together um, and create an integrated solution? Because one platform Um, protecting they're just going to go to a different platform. Exactly. Right. And we're seeing that already. Mm. Uh, and there's all sorts of reasons that this is challenging. And yeah. there's many, many um, things that are going to be difficult to overcome in reaching a solution like this. But I am encouraged at the number of leaders um, with brilliant minds yeah. and are in the right centers of influence that want to help make this happen.
1: You talked before about part of the problem is the economics of it. Yes. And, I mean, the tech industry is driven – think people around here like to think that it's driven by this kind of, we want to be good people, mm-hmm. we want to do good to the world, but really the reality is it's driven by economics, it's mm-hmm. driven by making mm-hmm. money. And so yeah. how, is there a way to make it economically? There is attractive. Yeah, what I think like? there
3: is, and we're, what we're seeing at IJM is just this huge explosion in large um, global companies that are now interested in ethical supply chains and hmm. eradicating slavery from deep in their supply chains um, and being able to bring to bear ethical products for us as mass consumers to buy. And as altruistic as that is, it's being driven by the bottom line sure. because mass consumers are becoming better educated. Um, young consumers in particular really care about free trade, about you know ethical supplies, even the whole organic movement of yeah. wanting our animals and, and our plants to be treated well. Yeah. and how they're produced is a different um, way of mass consumption than Mm -hmm. what we saw a generation or two ago. So I think there is a way to look at that from a sex trafficking standpoint as well, where Google AI could come out with advertisements about how they're using AI for good. And some of this, of course, already exists. But if they're leading the way in ensuring that children can't be exploited on any of their platforms... I think that's good for their, their consumer. Um, So I I do see that there's a financial component here to it. And I would love to further explore that with the right people who know a lot more than I do about what that could look like. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I agree. I think, you know, uh, what would it look like to have um, ethical technologies um, where there's uh, you've significantly reduced the ability of your technology to be used to harm people, Um, Just the way that people want um, slave-free supply chains, Um, they don't want child labor, they don't want slave labor um, in the chocolate that they're consuming uh, or in the clothes that they're wearing. I think we can have a same kind of uh, uh, consumer demand and movement that says, I only want to buy devices if I know that the company is doing everything that they can to ensure that their product is not being used to harm people, to abuse people. And so, yeah, you could take the standpoint and say, well, this is a neutral, you know, it's this is a neutral product. Anybody could use it for good or bad. Or you could say, yeah, but there's a significant demand out there by consumers to protect children, to, to not participate in something um, that's harming other people. Right. And so I do see that um, that actually could be really good for business, but it does take the right kind of creativity, um and and explaining it well so consumers understand it and i think an example is that is like right now um consumers are very focused on data privacy um, and that's very important to us um because for all the right reasons right we don't want our data to be abused to be misused to fall in the wrong hands um and that's a that's a really important priority for global technology but um at the same time what about child protection what about online safety right and so i think it's really important to balance um both data privacy and online safety and sometimes the the tools like encryption um that would give us the most or maximum uh, right. data privacy sure will actually prevent those um, tech companies uh, and social media platforms from identifying right. um, abuse and and crimes that are being committed on their platforms because it's encrypted. Yeah. So they can't even see it, right? And so, right now, technology companies are providing um, millions and millions of cyber tips to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, but they can only do that because they can see into their platform. Right. So, if somebody is committing a crime or somebody's posting an image uh, of a child on, on uh, Messenger or Skype or something, they can see it. But if they if it goes all encrypted, it's actually an open question. Like, right. will they still be able to uh, to protect children yeah. on their platform, um, or will that capability go away? Right. And so I think it's just important for consumers to understand that there's a trade off. Um, if we just demand you know hundred percent data privacy and we don't have this important conversation about child protection, then we might lose something really val- valuable. Um, and not even realize it.
1: That's a great, it's a great observation. I think the whole, I've been wanting to explore. We don't have time here, but a Christian view of data privacy because I think it's more, it's more complicated than we should have everything, be, you know, uh, uh, that nobody can see. Because Christians believe in truth. We believe in that. Mm. that truth exposed is actually good. Yes. That doesn't mean everything. You know, there. It doesn't mean privacy is out the window. But there ought to be some level of. We believe in the fact that we want people to know what's real and what's true.
3: And I think there's an urgency to that conversation, Paul, because of the pressure that t- tech companies are under right now. To make sure everything's private. That's right. right. And I think the general consumer outside of the Valley just sees that as a net gain, as sure. a good thing, without understanding the trade-offs that John's explaining. Yeah. And I, I do worry that if we don't elevate this conversation quickly, that we're going to be then in a position where now most things are fully encrypted. We're seeing all of the negative side effects to that and it's hard to play catch up.
1: Yeah, that's complicated. That's yes, a good topic. It is. Let me ask you about as you're in this work, and we're, we're you know we're, we're talking about consumers, and do you see people that you know as they become familiar with this work changing their personal relationship to technology? You know, I mean, you know, John, you run an office, and people are investigating people, and they see, you know, it seems to me, pick up your phone, and you say. I just saw someone do something horrific with this. And now I pick mine up. Does it, do people start to rethink their own relationships? Because that's one of the things we like to talk about is that, you know, if I work at Google, if I work at Facebook, like I can't, I can't be a force for helping technology for the world unless I personally have a good relationship with technology. And so many of us don't. Not that we're using it for these horrific criminal acts, but are we using it in ways that aren't particularly edifying to ourselves or others? Or whatever?
2: yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think what what I can say is, as our team uh, in the Philippines has partnered with uh, with the government and other NGOs to uh, to combat online sexual exploitation of children, we have um, you know also been trying to brainstorm how do we use technology um, to make the system more survivor friendly or, you know, mm. so that prosecutions can be, um, have at their center this focus on protecting children from being re-traumatized. Um, and so I think that has changed how we view technology. Right, um, And so we, we do see that, oh, actually technology can, um, can accelerate um, the progress uh, of, of combating violence and protecting the poor from violence. Um, if it's used in the right way yeah and so I think I think that has you know taken technology from just being this oh fun you know thing that I, I get to use I can watch movies and uh, and connect with people around the world and saying actually while it can be used for bad and to commit crime we can actually also use it to help people right um, you know we can use it to allow uh, a police officer in Australia to uh, to testify in a search warrant application that's happening in Cebu instead of that person having to get on a plane and come all the way to the Philippines. Right. So that's like uh, an innovation uh, and it's using simple technology, you know? um, And, but that's like one example. Um, Or how do we, um, when we are um, interviewing survivors when, or the police are interviewing survivors, how do they um, record that um, interview? So using like um, video, we call video in depth interviews. And basically it's just to record and capture the testimony of the survivor in a child-friendly way, yeah. um, and then allow that to be used, um, when the trafficker is being charged, rather um, than subjecting a child exactly. to everything that's involved yeah. in. Yeah. In rather testimony. than, yeah, rather than bringing, you know, a, a six-year-old girl or a boy into a courtroom right. to testify, you know, um, in front of their trafficker, um, who could actually be like somebody they know and trust, yeah. um, and then be cross-examined by a defense attorney. It's, it's re-traumatizing right so even just a simple technology of recording uh the 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 testimony of a child um that can then be used as electronic evidence and presented in court so for for our team as we're just thinking how do we strengthen the justice system how do we make it more sustainable um for for the government to combat this crime we do see an important role for for technology to play and so that's how it changes kind of our um relationship or interaction with technology right
1: Amanda, what about you, you know, as a mom of young kids? And as you've gotten exposed to this work, how has it made you think about your relationship with technology. Yes.
3: Taking that question in a totally different direction yeah. from a, a maybe more like personal standpoint, seeing OSEC as an extreme version of like eroding human intimacy Yeah, and eroding this really like good gift that we have, which is the sexual act and our like natural um, longing right. for sexual intimacy. And so often we've made the mistake of just treating all of it as bad and shameful. and instead trying to say like there is something really good and beautiful and natural Mm -hmm. that we all long for and technology, unfortunately, is creating an outlet to try to tap into that in increasingly perverted ways. Um, And while OSEC's the extreme that most of us will never have a personal experience with, I think we've all experienced a less extreme version of that. Whether it's as simple as like, viewing images on Instagram that are meant to arouse you to someone who's not your spouse. Yeah. Right. And that just becomes really normal because of course there's lots of people posing in bathing suits on Instagram. Right. And so we, we no longer see our spouse in the same way as maybe we were, were meant to see him or mm-hmm. her. Um, so I, I think it's just heightened my awareness yeah. to how in today's world we have to be ruthless in our pursuit of protecting human dignity yep. and protecting the humanization of how we see each other and protecting human intimacy yeah. because everything around us is like lowering that bar in ways that um, are really comfortable yep. right and, and and really really um, accepted. Yep. So yeah, really normal. So how do we become more thoughtful and intentional in protecting our own hearts, our own marriages, and then certainly our children. Yes. I think we have to accept the really hard fact that our young kids are going to be exposed to porn. Right. And like, just like wrestle with that because it is. And then we can get to the point of saying, so what do we do about it? Right. Because I feel a responsibility as a mom, if I choose to do nothing, I think I have to answer yeah. to that right. because to I know yep. I know they're going to be exposed, and I know it's going to be at young ages. So I think we have to get um intentional and thoughtful and maybe a little bit more courageous than mm-hmm. we typically are in how we're going to tackle that and doing it in a way that is open and loving um, and not shame inducing um, and inviting our kids into the conversation to say like, this is something that you're going to see. And I want you to be able to talk to me about it so that as you get older, we can have deeper and deeper conversations about how we protect ourselves and why we protect ourselves. Like it's not just this white knuckling, like that's bad and I'm not supposed to look because it is this good natural desire that you have that God gave you that you're supposed to have. So let's like, value that and let's save it for what it is meant for rather than indulge it in ways that we know are going to be so harmful in so many different ways. Right. So that's like my mom brain. That's great. That's a great perspective. <laughs> Which is different than John's yeah. lawyer brain.
1: <laughs> well, there are so many threads we could just explore. This has been, it's been really neat. I, I always like to ask uh, people that I talk with two final questions and I'll ask both of you. What, first one is, what as you think about the future, what are you most excited about for technology? And the corresponding question, as you think about the future, what's your doomsday scenario? What are you most worried about things might get to?
2: Yeah, well, um, I'll answer the first question. What I'm most excited about um, is just the amazing role that technology can play um, uh, in combating different forms of violence around the world, um, whether it's you know um, slavery in the Thai fishing industry or online sexual exploitation of children or, or sex trafficking in South Asia, Um, I just think we're at this point where, um, you know, there's machine learning, there's artificial intelligence. There's so, there's so many things that like five years ago we would have thought were completely impossible. Um, and so I think what that does is it just opens us up to amazing opportunities to, to do things in fighting crime and protecting people from violence that we never could have imagined doing before. So that is what makes me, um most uh, hopeful um, and excited about it. I'm going to turn the harder and second question over to Amanda. (laughs) I see. (laughs) Thanks, John. That's how lawyers work. (laughs) (laughs) I'll maybe start
3: with a a quick thing that um, I'm worried about and then end with something that I'm I'm really hopeful about. I mentioned it earlier, but just the um, growing use of virtual reality technology and its ability to further dehumanize us to a degree that I don't think we've yet seen. And I think we're just starting to get a glimpse of what it can look like for a human being to think that he or she doesn't even need actual human interaction and is divorcing himself or herself from that very natural desire because they're so consumed with a technology that feels so real. Um, That is just we're just getting started on that path, but the much more hopeful um, use of technology that I like to focus on is the ability that it has to close the gap between those with opportunity and those without, Mm. those with money and resources and those without. And it has the potential to incredibly lower the barrier to things like access to education and literacy and microfinance and job training, these things that were once very expensive and very difficult to bring to people living in poverty um, now having the ability to bring that at scale at such lower costs um, than would have been possible without technology. Hmm.
1: That's great. Well, John, Amanda, it's been really great to have you guys here. I feel like we could, like I say, talk in a bunch of different directions and we should wrap up and maybe have a future conversation at some point. Yeah, maybe. you bet. Yeah.
2: Thanks for Thanks. having us. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, it's been great.
0: Thank you for listening to allthingsnew.tech. We hope you continue the conversation by subscribing to our blog at allthingsnew.tech. We have a variety of authors working together to develop a biblical framework for engaging with technology. Check it out. Join the conversation.